This morning we finish up the Gospel of John. It's kind of a bittersweet moment. Uh, It's been, for me anyway, a really, really fun series. I've loved getting to walk with Jesus and to follow the twists and turns of his ministry, to follow his teaching as it unfolded, to watch people start to get who he was, and then to watch him do what he did, come as a king who dies. And now we wrap it up. John chapter 21 tells us, gives us the last scenes that John chose to, to tell us about from the life of Jesus. My, uh, my paternal grandfather was a, a preacher for something like 50 years. Long time. And he loved to give advice about preaching. And one of the, one of the things I remember him telling me when I started getting interested in preaching was that you have got to learn when to sit down. Right? You've got to learn how to recognize the moment when you've peaked, when you've got them. Then you've got to sit down. And, and what you've got to watch out for is missing that moment, peaking, and then going on to explain something else that no one's going to want to really listen to. Now, <laughs> those of you who have sat under my preaching for any time at all know that I still have not learned that lesson. <laughs> Uh, I have a long way to go to learn that lesson. Uh, but one of the things I noticed when I was reading, preparing for this, this morning's sermon, is that a lot of people think John missed his moment. That last week was his moment. I mean, the end, of the, the end of chapter 20 that we covered last week, here's what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's a great conclusion. It summarizes everything that's in the book. Great time to sit down, right? You got them. And then John launches into a whole other chapter with what might seem on the surface like kind of a random story. But it isn't random. It is an attack on. Everything John's written is written for the purpose I just read to you, and that includes chapter 21. John believes you need to know what happened here in this story, and in particular in this conversation that this chapter records. You need to know this if you're going to believe that Jesus is a Savior that can save you. What you need to know, what you need to know is that Jesus can handle your mess, that Jesus will receive even you if you come to him. And you need to know how to follow him over the long haul. It isn't just enough to know that he's the Christ. You need to know what it's going to take for you to follow this Christ, however long your life should last and whatever your life might include. You need to know what it's going to take. And that's exactly what John is pointing to in this last story and in the last conversation with Peter. He's doing more than tying up loose ends, though he's doing some of that. He's trying to present you with a picture of the only power source that is going to get you from now until the end of your life as a faithful follower of Jesus. And if you want to follow Jesus, this story, this conversation, point you to the one thing you really need above all else. What you need above all else to stay true to Jesus is is love. Everything hinges on love. So this is not just a cheap ploy for me to capitalize on the, uh, the, the spirit of Valentine's Day yesterday. This is straight out of the text. I want to frame 
everything we're going to talk about this morning in light of love. We're going to take four steps together to understand the love that must be in us if we are going to be with Jesus faithfully through the end of our lives, not knowing what our lives are going to include. Okay, Here are the four things we're going to talk about. We're going to start with love's invitation. Unpack a story about Jesus and his love. We're going to move to love's power. Then we'll see love's fruit. And then we'll see love's perspective. Those are the four steps I want to take. I want to begin by reading the story that's about the first half of John 21. And we're going to press pause on, our, on the passage. We're going to unpack that a little bit. And then later on, I'll come back and read the conversation where Jesus is drilling down with Peter on what it will mean for Peter to follow him for the rest of his life. So first, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first half of John 21. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. Then they went out, got into the boat, but that night, caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to begin with love's invitation. It's the point of the story, I think. The story picks up sometimes after Jesus has appeared to his disciples. And the last time he was with them, he'd given them a mission to carry out. He told them they were supposed to do the work he was doing. That just like the Father sent him in the world with a job, now he was sending them out on the same job to take Jesus and the message of forgiveness and healing and cleansing to anyone who would listen. That was his mission that he'd given them. But for some reason, it seems like they still don't fully know what that's going to look like because they just go right back to work. Now, some people think that that John's trying to be critical of Peter and the others, that that they're just sort of giving up on Jesus already. I don't know that we're supposed to read that into it here. It doesn't seem like he's really making that sort of comment. But at the very least, they aren't quite sure what it's going to mean to serve a risen Jesus, to live for him in the world. 
They're waiting on something, it seems like. So they go fishing. After a fruitless night, Jesus calls to them. He tells them exactly where to throw their nets, and he gets them an incredible haul. Part of what John's doing here is just broadcasting to us something he's said before, tried to show us before. Jesus is not normal, right? This resurrected Christ is recognizable, but not really recognizable. He's the same, but he's different. And he has powers that normal people don't have. That's part of what John's doing here in showing us this miraculous catch. But from here on, the focus is much less on Jesus and his remarkable resurrected body and his powers of perception. The focus is on Jesus and his final interactions with Peter. As soon as somebody recognizes that it's Jesus who's told them where to throw the nets, Peter doesn't waste any time. He throws his clothes back on and he dives in head first. It sounds like maybe even the boat beat him back. It wasn't the smartest thing to do, but Peter has got to get to Jesus. And the reason is that, I think, Peter knew he had unfinished business with Jesus. The background to this story to the conversation we're about to unpack, the background to all of chapter 21 is chapter 13 of John and chapter 18 of John. In chapter 13 of John, Jesus has just sat down for dinner in this room with his disciples and he's starting to unpack for them more than he ever has before, it seems like, about who he is and what he's come to do. And he's telling them, I'm about to go somewhere you can't follow. He's forecasting his own death. And Peter says to him in John chapter 13, I'll follow you anywhere. What do you mean I can't follow you? I'll even lay down my life for you if necessary. A few chapters later, same night, soldiers show up to arrest Jesus. They've come to kill him. And at the hour of Jesus' deepest need, one of his dearest friends betrayed him. Peter, the one who insisted that he would never lay down his life was not the one who handed Jesus over, but he abandoned him just the same. Surely that had left a mark on Peter's soul. He dives into the water to get to Jesus because he needs resolution. And from here on, everything about this scene mirrors what happened in chapter 18. When Peter arrives on the shore, John tells us specifically that Jesus has built a charcoal fire. There's one other place that a charcoal fire, specifically this word, there's one other place that a charcoal fire is mentioned in John. It was a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest around which Peter and the others had stood when Peter was confronted that night three times with his take on Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Peter had been asked that night around the fire. And here he reaches shore, another charcoal fire, another three-time encounter where he is asked what he will do with Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? I can't imagine that Peter ever smelled a charcoal fire again after that fateful night. 
where he didn't catch his breath, where he didn't feel that gut punch of memory. Smell has an incredible power to bring back memories, doesn't it? We were walking at Radnor Lake last weekend when it was so pretty out. And I guess they had used like recycled Christmas trees to sort of remulch the path along there. And as soon as we step on that path, like I'm immediately transported, not just to this last Christmas, but to Christmases as a kid. There's the smell of Christmas trees. It has this amazing power to immediately make you feel something. There's a certain kind of roast beef that if it's cooking anywhere near me, it takes me immediately back to my grandma's house on a Sunday afternoon, almost like it was yesterday. And there are other memory jogs that are not nearly so pleasant. Some of the deepest shame that I've known, deepest embarrassment, it can be triggered in me just by seeing an old familiar place or smelling some familiar smell. Surely that... What's Peter's experience when he walks up? But this was no test of Peter. It was no punishment for Peter. This was Jesus' invitation to Peter. Because Jesus invites him not to take his licks, but to sit down and eat. Jesus has prepared a meal for him. In the ancient world, in this culture, there was no more powerful symbol of friendship and intimacy than to share a meal. Jesus' love seeks out the one who betrayed him. He prepares a table in the presence of his enemies and invites his enemies to come to him. That's the first thing you need to know about Jesus. The first thing you need to know about Jesus is that no matter what you've done, Jesus offers you his love. He offers you an invitation to a future that is not defined by your past. John wrote in one of his letters that in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, to take what our sins deserve. Or as John wrote in this gospel, as Whitney read for us earlier, God so loved the world, those who hated him, those who wanted nothing to do with him, the realm of darkness organized in rebellion against him, God so loved the world that he gave the most precious thing in the world to him, his only son, that whoever believes would not perish, but have eternal life. What you need to know is that God's love in Jesus is an invitation to you, first and foremost. Before you are ever asked about your love for him, you are told of his love for you. That's love's invitation. Now the conversation takes center stage. The story has been told. The stage is set. Now Jesus gets down to business with Peter. I want to read the conversation beginning in verse 15. If you want to follow along with me. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, 
Son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who'd been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. When the conversation between Jesus and Peter Peter picks up, It's clear that the setup is to mirror the conversation on the night that Jesus died, where he was Peter was confronted, Who is Jesus to you? and denied his Lord. Jesus is now giving him a second opportunity. That much is clear. But we've got to be really careful here, I think, not to miss what exactly is going on. Because Jesus does not focus on his love here. Peter's love for Jesus, in order to shame him for not having enough love back on that night. His interest is in getting Peter the power that Peter is going to need for the future to make sure he is going to have the the only power source that's going to carry him faithfully to a life that's going to end in his own brutal death. That's what Peter's interested in. What Peter, or what Jesus is interested in, what Jesus wants to show us through his conversation with Peter, I think, is that love has Power, the only power that can keep a person faithfully following Jesus throughout life, no matter what that life brings. Jesus is not trying to dredge up the past. He's not trying to scold Peter. He's not trying to punish him. He wants to empower him. He wants to restore him and to send him out on mission. And that's why he asks Peter if he loves him. It could sound on the surface like he's asking Peter to prove himself again. Peter, you denied me three times. So how can I trust you to love me? Will you be stronger this time, Peter? Will you let me down again, Peter? But Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus knows the answer. Yeah, Peter's going to let him down again. No, Peter won't be stronger on his own this time. Jesus knows that the only thing that matters 
is whether or not Peter loves Jesus with a love that can shape his life into something more than what it's been. He's honing in on his love here because of something that John has said over and over through this book. Our behavior, the shape of how we live, comes not so much from what we think, not even so much from our own willpower and self-resolve. The shape of how we live, of how we behave, the shape of our lives comes from what we love, from what we desire, from the affections of our heart and what they run to. That's why three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter, love is what you must be about. I want to give you a couple of examples of how John has already been building this theme. That what you love is what matters. If you want to know why you do the things you do, you need to figure out what you love. Back in chapter 3. John is describing the fact that Jesus has come into the world, into the darkness, as a light. But that when he gets there, when he gets into the world, people love the darkness rather than the light. They reject Jesus and hold on to the darkness that they had because their deeds were evil and they loved the darkness. They loved the lives that they had already. Jesus became a threat to those. They reject Jesus not because the arguments for him didn't add up, but because they didn't want him to be true. That's John chapter 3. Jesus makes the same principle in a positive way, uses the same principle like his, a positive point in chapter 14. Here's what Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Those who obey Jesus, those who have my commandments and keeps them, Those are the ones who love Jesus. Another way to say it is, if you love Jesus, you obey him. You have his commandments and you keep them. Peter's failure on the night Jesus was arrested was not first and foremost a failure of courage. And it wasn't a failure of willpower. It was first and foremost a failure of love. Because in the moment he was asked to stand with Jesus, he loved his own body, his own reputation, his comfort, his protection. He loved something other than Jesus more than he loved the Lord who stood to die. His failure was a failure of love. And Jesus brings him back to love in these verses Not to shame him for that failure, but to prepare him for his future. Because Peter's going to fail again. He's going to fail again. But any usefulness that he has, any faithfulness that Peter has over the long haul of his life is going to be a faithfulness that comes from love for Jesus. For Jesus as he is, not as Peter wanted him to be. For Jesus as crucified Lord who calls his followers to take up their cross. Peter's got to love that Jesus Or his faith just isn't going to last. And the same goes for those of us who are interested in following Jesus. You've got to love him to have any hope for lasting faith in him. And you've got to love him to have any hope for victory over the things in your life that you wish were different but can't seem to shake. There isn't one of us in this room right now that 
that can't list some of those things. But I wonder how often you've thought about the things you would like to change, weaknesses that you have, temptations you constantly give into, sin patterns that seem bigger than you. How often in your, in your struggle, even in your despair, have you thought about your problem as a problem of love? I don't bring that up because to, to hear it is automatically to be fixed by it. I bring it up because if you're not attacking your problem as a problem of love, as a deficit of love for Jesus, then you're probably shooting at the wrong target. If you want to know victory, if you want a life that's different from what it is, then the real place you've got to drill down, more fundamental than anything else practically that you might need to change in your life, the place you've got to drill down is on whether and to what extent your heart loves Jesus. Do you love me? That's Jesus' question because that's where everything rests. That's love's power. It has the power to change you. But what is love's fruit? We talked about love's invitation that invites us, even though we don't deserve it, into a relationship of love with the one who made us. We talked about love's power. It has the power to change who you are, even though you might have been frustrated by years of fruitless struggle. But what will, what will it look like in our lives if love shows up? Let me put it this way. If our love for Jesus were to get deeper, to be more powerful, to be more sensual in our lives, what would that end up looking like? How would we be able to tell it? What would be the signs of that deepening love? Jesus points us there too. Here's what you need to be looking for in your life. This is what you want. This is why you pray for more love of Jesus. Love's fruit. It's back in verses 15 to 17. Did you notice? Every time Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, and Peter says, yes, I love you, Jesus gives Peter a test of that love. All right? You say you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Here's what I think Peter's getting at, or Jesus is getting at in, in, in his conversations with Peter. If you love somebody, Part of what that love is, is coming to love what they love. You take on what they're interested in as your interests. You identify with them as you grow more and more in love with them. And, and you begin to look more like them. You begin to take on their interests in the world. What they love becomes what you love. So Jesus is telling Peter, if you love me then your life is going to be aimed at the thing my life was aimed at. You're going to be driven by a love for the same things that I love. Jesus doesn't give Peter a manual on sheep herding here. He doesn't say much. He uses an image and he just uses a couple of words. He leaves us to fill in the blanks. But, but John has given us something here. Back in chapter 10, Jesus did describe what he thought about his own role as a shepherd of sheep that he loves. And I think we're meant to take what Jesus said about his own shepherding in chapter 10, and plug it in here, that's what tells us what he's calling for from Peter. Back in chapter 10, where Jesus developed this image of a good shepherd, he described himself as a shepherd who's not like a hired hand. He doesn't care nothing for the sheep. He's not some sort of contractor who does as much as he's paid to do and then no more. 
That's what a hired hand would do. He doesn't care so much about the sheep, doesn't know their names. He's, he's there to give a service. And as soon as, as the, the service and its requirement outgrows the money that he's been paid to do it, he's done. Only part of him is paid for. But Jesus gives himself for sheep that are his. He knows them intimately and he stands for them. And his investment in providing for his sheep goes as far as their needs go. His willingness to protect them extends his life itself. The good shepherd is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's what chapter 10 said. And now he tells Peter, you be a shepherd. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, give them what they need, protect them from what threatens them. That is how I'll know that you love me. If you love me, you'll love what I love. In John 13, Jesus had made love for each other the test, the primary test of who's his disciple. He'd said, this is how men will know that you're with me, by the way that you love one another. He's calling Peter back to those words, and he's filling those words in with some content. If you love others like I have loved you, then you'll want to get to them the same thing I came to get to them with my whole life. You'll want me for them. What did Jesus come to do for his lambs? To give himself to his lambs. How was he protecting them? By giving them his life. How was he feeding them and building them up over time? By giving them himself, his words, his promises. So what would it mean for Peter to take care of Jesus' sheep? It would mean to do the thing that's more loving than anything else you can do. To give them Jesus. To give them the living water, the bread of life the only one who has words of eternal life. To feed them is to give them what Jesus came to give them. It's to give them Jesus. It's to do what Peter's doing in one of his letters. I love that we have Peter's letters for an example of how Peter took what Jesus tells him here and ran with it. To feed Jesus' lambs is to do what Peter does in 1 Peter. To tell them that all flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of the field. Grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord, it stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you, the word of eternal life. That's what Peter was giving to anyone who would listen. And, and friends, this is not just about Peter and his special job as a disciple of Jesus or an apostle. I think this is about all of us. That all of us, if we are to love Jesus, will be loving him through giving him to other people. I wonder if you've ever thought about that as, a, as one of the main callings on your life. That one of the main reasons you're here, if you're with Jesus, is to give Jesus to other people. It's so common these days, and I understand it. It's so common to, to hear uh, someone say something like, I, I really love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And there's good reasons for that. There's, there's a history behind those words. People have been burned by churches. Jesus does seem in some ways more lovable than the people who are with Jesus. But Jesus himself and all of the New Testament writers after him can't imagine any love for Jesus that doesn't translate into love for what Jesus loves. What Jesus loves are his lambs, his church. What Jesus loves are people. 
messed up, broken people who do each other wrong. There's no conceivable way for Jesus or the people who came after him for you to deeply love Jesus and not live a life that's given to loving Jesus' people. It's cause and effect. And it works like so many other things in our lives. Love demands the glory of the beloved. Love demands that others see how worthy and lovable the thing loved is. When you love a movie or a good book, you sell it to people. You rave about it. You explain it to them in a way that will make them want to engage with it. That's part of your loving it. You don't get to love it and then do nothing with it. It's why people are talking about their pets or their kids or their grandkids all the time, right? This thing that you love, you can't not talk about it. You can't not sing its praises. If you love Jesus, you'll be selling Jesus to other people. You'll be trying to get people to see him, not as some subject that you've mastered and can now explain with great clarity, but as a person that you know who's working on you, who's there for them if they'll just give themselves to him. Someone who can change you, who has power. You'll love him by sharing him. That's love's fruit. Feed my lambs, Jesus says. The last thing I want to show you is love's perspective. If we love Jesus our perspective on life changes. The final, the final scene in this exchange between Jesus and his, and, and his friend Peter, it's a remarkable one. The focus has been on love for Jesus as the power for following Jesus to a life that's lived, sharing Jesus with other people. But now, now Peter is given an incredible insight into just where following Jesus is going to lead him. It's a, it's a strange phrasing of it. It, doesn't, it wouldn't necessarily communicate to us if John hadn't dropped a note in there to tell us what's going on. He tells Peter that, hey, here's what's coming for you. There will be a time when you'll go places you don't want to go, when others are going to dress you, when you're going to have your hands stretched out. That's a shorthand for crucifixion. And John tells us in his little parenthesis that that's exactly what Jesus was getting at. He was telling Peter how Peter was going to die if he followed Jesus to the end. It's an incredible thing. And church tradition that has made it down to us tells us that that's exactly what happened to Peter. That after a life lived, selling Jesus to anyone who would listen, always bragging on him, taking him wherever he could go, Peter was captured and crucified, just like his master. Following Jesus to get what you want out of this life is a dead end. You follow him because you love him or you don't follow him at all. Now, this is a message that can be hard to swallow under the best of circumstances, and it can seem impossible to swallow under hard circumstances. And it can, I I think, maybe this is too strong of a statement, I'm going to say it anyway. It's never harder to swallow than when your circumstances, your hard circumstances, don't line up with the circumstances of other people. Peter's no Superman. Peter's thinking here exactly what you would be thinking. Okay, so I'm going to be killed in the way that you were killed. That's where my life following Jesus is going to go. What about this guy? 
He looks back at John. He says, what about this man? And Jesus gives him nothing. Nothing but strong words, almost of rebuke. Jesus says, what if this man lives? What if he lives until I come again? What if, in other words, you die the most horrible death that's ever been devised, and this guy doesn't die at all? What is that to you? Do you love me? Follow me. What he's insisting on is that love for Jesus is the key to following Jesus over the long haul because only love for Jesus has the power to shift our view. This is it, friends. Only love for Jesus has the power to shift our view from comparing our lives to the lives of others to see how much we're getting out of life to comparing our lives with the weight of Jesus' promises to us. You can see what's hard in your life in light of the promises Jesus has made, in light of who he is and what he offers to all who are in him, or you can see your life in light of how it lines up with the lives of others. The only way to long, sustaining faithfulness to Jesus is to think more about what Jesus offers, what he's promised in himself, to love that more than the lives we're not getting to live here that others seem to be getting. Every single one of us is tempted to be more focused on what's different between our lives and the lives of others than we are focused on Jesus. Some of, and, and, and the reason, what feeds this, is that we're always going to be unequal. Some of us are going to always have to worry about money. And others of us are going to always have more money than we know what to do with. Some of us are going to get married, and others of us aren't. Some of us are going to have happy marriages. Some of us are going to have marriages that seem like they're always a struggle to make it work. Some of us will have jobs that we really like and that we're pretty good at, and others of us, others of us will feel like we're just trapped in a dead-end job that's going nowhere and means nothing. Some of us are going to have loving and nurturing family environments. Others of us are going to suffer neglect, even abuse that could mark us for life. Some of us, faith seems to come pretty easy and others of us struggle with doubt that we can't get past and these things are never more hard than when we're suffering as Jesus told Peter he was going to do. And the only way to sustainable faith in Jesus to following him over the long haul is to compare your life. He's telling Peter this. He's telling you this. Compare your life now, not to the lives of other people, but to what Jesus says he is for you. What is it to you if that guy gets married and you can't be sure you will? Do you love me? Follow me. What is it to you if your body is breaking down while someone else your age never even catches cold? Do you love me? What is that to you? Follow me. What is it to you if someone else gets celebrated for their service and no one seems to notice what you're doing? Do you love me? Follow me. Friends, it's not that we shouldn't, it's not that we should pretend that that suffering isn't real. That Jesus just takes it all away. That's not what he's saying. He's telling Peter he's going to die. He's, He's a realist. And he would know. He's not telling you that you don't get to experience your pain. Jesus experienced it. Knowing he would give life to his friend Lazarus when he was dead, Jesus stood 
at his graveside and he wept for the pain of his friend and the pain of that family. Jesus knows pain that none of us will ever even know. And he didn't deny it. What he does is this. He models a life where pain is faced for the glory that was set before him. And he calls Peter and he calls us to a love for Jesus and what Jesus offers that puts in perspective what we're getting out of this life and how it relates to what others are getting. He won't stand for comparison. Friends, you can't either. If you want a faith that lasts, you've got to starve out your tendency to compare to other people. And you have got to feed your love for Jesus any way that you can. And I think a great place to start is with the words of Peter himself. Jesus told Peter, feed my lambs. Peter feeds us through his words. I want to close by reading to you what he said in the first chapter of his first letter that has come down to us. This is Peter feeding his lambs. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was written by one who saw him. He knew him. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you, he writes to you, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, we want Peter's faith. Thank you for showing us that he is not different from us. He was no Superman. He struggled like we struggle, and you gave him an ability to face death with courage, to face a hard life with joy, because you gave him the ability to see and to love Jesus and all that he is. Give that to us, we pray this morning, by your spirit. Amen.